Welcome to the Eco Interviews, where we amplify the voices of eco warriors from across the world. My name is Fiona Martin, and I started the Eco Interviews as a way to speak to people who are involved in helping tackle the climate crisis we find ourselves in. In this episode, we speak with Shelley Robbins from Upstate Forever about plastics. I was compelled to seek out an expert on plastic waste and plastic recycling after my own experiences with recycling bins. Where I live, we do not have curbside recycling, and I find the recycling signage at waste centers and the instructions on plastic packaging very confusing. I also wonder if some of it is misleading. After watching the Netflix series Broken, the episode entitled Recycling Sham, I questioned whether what was going in the recycling bin was really being recycled. Shelley helped answer these questions and looked at the issues surrounding the creation of plastics, our excessive use of the material, and what happens when we're done with it. I encourage you to look into the recycling programs where you live to see if the waste is being disposed of in a way that you think is acceptable. It's also very relevant to bring up how our current waste management plans disproportionately affect low-income and communities of color. Following the death of George Floyd and the subsequent protests, I took a deeper look at how environmental and racial justice are intertwined. For the week of June 8th through 12th, our Facebook and Instagram accounts are elevating black and people of color voices in the environmental movement. I encourage you to follow the Eco Interviews on Facebook and Instagram to learn more. Now let's hear from Shelley. Welcome to Shelley Robbins from Upstate Forever. Thanks for joining us on the Eco Interviews today. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Thank you. So, so honored to be here. I appreciate this. I'm super excited to speak to you about plastic and recycling and waste management because I think there is just, um, I know me personally, I just didn't know a lot about plastic. And so I've been searching for someone to talk to about it and learn more and share that with our audience. So I'm really excited to get talking with you about that. But let's start out with why don't you tell us more about yourself, Shelley, and then tell us a little bit about what Upstate Forever does. Okay. Um, I am, let's see, I've, my, back, my education is in, um, I have a bachelor's degree in economics from Duke University, and that actually plays a really big role in what I do. And then I have an MBA um, from Southwestern Oklahoma State University. That's just where I was at that point in time. Um, and... Uh, I've been with, I've had sort of a liberal arts career. I've done a lot of different things. I've worked for the Public Service Commission of Florida. I've worked for the governor's office in Florida under Lawton Child, who is an amazing human being. Um, I worked for the Oklahoma Department of Commerce and then uh, moved to Spartanburg in 1998. And I've done, did several different jobs in Spartanburg until I landed at Upstate Forever almost 13 years ago. Um, and I'm now the energy and state policy director, uh, at Upstate Forever. So I'm our presence in Columbia. Um, I'm registered to lobby for the organization. And I also basically frame our larger policy issues beyond, uh, energy, beyond plastics, you know, the whole shebang. Nice. All right. Um, so today's topic, we're talking about plastics. So, um, plastic is something from the minute I wake up to the minute I go to bed, I'm interacting with, I'm touching, I'm drinking from, I'm using, and I mean, everything is plastic. So yeah, even though it's a material and it's, you know, plastic isn't a single material, it's lots of different types. Um, I still think there's just a lot of mysticism around it. So can you give us like a, a history of plastic, what, what it's made of, when it came into use, kind of a life cycle of plastic in a general sense? Sure. Plastic uh, was sort of invented um, in 1907. Uh, it was first called Bakelite, and it was used as an insulator for electrical uh, stuff. You know, the, the electrical industry was just getting off the ground at that point, and it you know, created a lot of heat and a lot of fire potential, and um, Bakelite was uh, created to insulate um, those devices. And then it just sort of continued to do that for a while uh, until the 1950s um, and then it took off like a rocket and if we think about our history what else happened in the 1950s that was the automobile boom and that's where we tie plastics and fossil fuels and a lot of people don't realize that plastics are a very profitable byproduct of the fossil fuel industry and the fossil fuel industry works very hard to keep 
the plastics industry growing uh, and expanding. So that, and I'm looking at, um, at a headline right now that says shale gas is driving new chemical industry investments in the U.S. And a lot of that is plastic. So basically it's a, um, there's, there's a byproduct of the, um, what they call the cracking um, of uh, fossil fuels and this byproduct, they didn't have anything to do with it. And now they've realized that they can, they can very inexpensively make plastic out of it. And it's just growing and growing and growing and becoming a bigger and bigger problem. Now, the other thing about plastics, its value as a recycling commodity is also tied to the price of oil, tied to fossil fuels. Everything's tied to fossil fuels. So now that we're in this tremendous um, uh, valley of fossil fuel prices, our recycling commodities have also very little value. Um, and so it's, it's communities that had used to have robust um, recycling programs are now having a hard time getting someone to pay them or even they might pay uh, an entity to take this off their hands if they're still operating their recycling programs. There are some plastics that do still have value. Um, the highest valued ones are number ones and twos. Um, number ones would be your, your water bottle. Number two might be your detergent, your laundry detergent container. Um, so those do still have some value uh, in the system, but the rest of it is very difficult to deal with and often gets landfilled today. Right. So that's a, that's a big point is, um, you know, I didn't know until recently that plastics were tied in with fossil fuels. So mm-hmm. that's definitely something to highlight, you know, like I said, sometimes you think plastic is just magic, but it is coming from fossil fuels. <laughs> and then, you know, recycling, my understanding really kind of kicked off the reduce, reuse, recycle sort of campaigns in the 70s. And so, you know, I'm born in the early 80s. I've grown up with this idea that we can recycle things. But as you mentioned, there's different types of plastic, type one, type two. I understand it's all the way through type seven. Not all mm-hmm. of them are the same. Some can be recycled, some can't. So can you tell us a little bit about, um, I mean, can plastic be recycled? What, is, what type of plastics can be recycled? Um, what can't? And then what is the lifespan of recycling? Like, can you eternally recycle plastic? No, <laughs> no, you can't. It's tied to fiber length. Um, and these ones and twos, um, note that the one, uh, it, your berry container, we call them clamshells. Mm-hmm. Um, those plastics, hard, clear plastic containers are also technically ones, but they are not um, easy to recycle. They are not in demand right now. And I'm, I'm speaking generally. There are mm-hmm. going to be some places where certain things are, but generally speaking. So your clamshells, I'm throwing mine away, and it hurts to do that. Um, the My water bottles, I just don't buy them in the first place. But if I did, <laughs> I would recycle them. Um, the ones and the twos have much longer fibers. So the longer the fiber, the easier it is to then take it and turn it into yet another item. But it probably can only be done about once. Mm-hmm. And then that fiber chain is broken and it's, it, it becomes a, a waste item. For example, if you think about the, 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 the flimsy little plastic that you might buy um, plants in at the garden store, Mm-hmm. super short fiber, valueless, can't do anything with it. You know, that's the end of the line. There are a few exceptions, um, what we call films. Um, films are, pro- are um, uh, polyethylene. They, your, your, your bread bag, your overwrap for your paper towels and your toilet paper, um, your grocery bags, those, um, one, one interesting use, one interesting recycling use that is happening with those is treks, that fake wood that you build an outdoor deck with, treks incorporates a lot of that into it. And we, um, I believe we still have a place in South Carolina that, that manufactures treks. And so our films, when you take those to the separate um, container at your grocery store, don't put them in with your co-mingled recycling because they will tear up equipment but separate them and take them to the grocery store and recycle them there and if you're in South Carolina for example 
hopefully it actually will get recycled and turn into somebody's deck. Um, never any guarantees, of course. Mm-hmm. So yeah, let's talk about those recycling um, those recycling plants. Basically, um, I've seen um, documentaries. Murph. Pardon? Called a Murph. A Murph. I didn't Material, even know that. <laughs> Materials recovery facility. A Murph. All right. Mm-hmm. So um, I've seen documentaries that talk about how we used to sell our recycling to China. So maybe it was sorted here and then palleted and shipped off mm-hmm. to China. Um, I heard that that dried up a little bit. China had crazy air pollution and the Olympics were coming. And so they said no more. And then it got shipped off to other um, third world countries. And it just seems to be, you know, I think part of waste is understanding that even though it leaves your hand at the recycling bin or your home trash can, that it still is going somewhere. So can you tell us a little bit about what's happening once it leaves my hand and either gets recycled or the other option would be landfill. So worst case scenario is it goes somewhere and poisons someone. And I'll get to that. Um, Ideally, if you have a well-functioning system in place locally, it does go to your, your, your uh, mixed uh, recycling your your paper, your cardboard, your plastics, and your uh, steel and aluminum. You throw them all in the same bin, and they go to a MRF, a materials recovery facility, which is part human, part mechanized sorting of these different things. And they're really fascinating to watch. Um, they used to take glass. They don't now um, because that's a whole other story, and we can talk about that. Yeah. Um, but the first thing they would do would be drop the glass. They would have glass breakers. Um, then there, there is a, sometimes there's a conveyor belt that moves at a certain velocity and aluminum cans or steel cans will shoot off at a certain velocity and they will drop in a certain place. It's pretty amazing. Mm. Um, there are blowers, you know, there are different ways to sort out all the different things that are in that commingled, um, group. Then the different products are bailed. And then what's left over is also bailed. And it was those leftovers, those, you know, the stuff that, that did not have a market in the United States or anywhere. Um, those were the things that were shipped overseas. And what would happen is as we are exporting and bringing all these containers into our ports in the United States, and of course, South Carolina has a massive port of Charleston, there would be these empty containers, um, shipping containers. And so it was easy enough and cheap to send things like that back. We're also sending those nurdles back. So the, the, the containers come in full of everything we buy at Target or whatever, and then they go back out with our waste. Now, um, in 2017, got some good numbers here, we were sending out 276,000 shipping containers. We were exporting. 276,000 shipping containers. And China was a big um, uh, uh, taker of that. In 2018, they, they passed a policy. Some people call it the Green Wall. Um, they called it the National Sword Policy. And they stopped um, accepting most uh, um, imports of uh, uh, things like that, uh, electronic waste and um, l- low-quality plastic waste. So in 2018, we exported 157,000 shipping containers. Then India got wise, and India banned um, the importation of that uh, type of waste. And in 2019, we were down to 88,000 exported shipping containers. Um, A lot of it now is going to Malaysia. That's probably the biggest um, recipient. And it, it, as of 2020, we're still exporting 5,600 containers a month to other uh, other countries. Turkey is one of those countries as well. And there, what what journalists are finding is that that plastic is being burned in those countries. And if you burn it, of course, it releases dioxins, um, and it's finding its way into the food supply. So that is a very bad outcome. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you you spoke about those nurdles, and I remember you um, referring me to an article in regards to the Port of Charleston and them finding nurdles there. Can you tell us what that is? What that means? 
The neuronals are the beginning. Um, so the, 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 yeah, we're exporting both. We're exporting the, the beginning of plastic and the end of plastic. So the neuronals are these tiny little pellets um, that, that come off of the, the cracker plants where fossil fuels are being processed. And they then become all of your other plastic products. And so they, um, they're they, at ports, Port of Charleston is one, they have facilities that take that, you know, move these crates of nurdles and sometimes they spill and they're going to be exported, you know, to Europe, to, to all sorts of uh, all over the world in, in order to become future plastic products in those countries. Um, so yeah, but they, they're so hard to contain and, you know, you drop a crate or something and you, they're right by the ocean. You've got, they're everywhere and you can't get them back. Um, and it was just, uh, just this spring, they found that Port of Charleston, the Charleston area was the second worst nurdle spill site in the country after um, a site in Texas. Of course, Texas is a big petrochemical um, and port uh, state as well. Yeah, and like I just watched the docu-series. It's on Netflix if anyone wants to watch one of these. It was in the Dirty Money series, and it talked about um, Point Comfort in Texas and the Formosa Plastics Company there, and just the not only the nurdle pollution in the bay, which ends up in the fish and destroyed fishing in that area, but also the amount of air pollution that they pumped out and it, the mm-hmm. knock-on effect with children with ADHD, pneumonia, um, you know, infect uh, all these sort of respiratory infections, and then the men or the men and women working at the plant having just you know, toxicity issues, cancer, um, just the entire thing, you know, and we have EPA regulations, but there was no enforcement of it. And there's a lot of money involved in passing hands between politicians and, and that sort of stuff. And it's just a, just a seedy world that I think most people are just not even aware of. So Mm-hmm. And I hate to hear that yeah. Charleston is experiencing this. And that brings us to South Carolina. You work for Upstate Forever, which is in the upstate of South Carolina. But um, mm-hmm. South Carolina has many environmental issues that the rest of the nation also faces. And so I'd love for you to talk about some of these. To kick off, um, we're, you know people are coming a little bit hip with plastics. And it seems to be the bit, two big initiatives are... Um, plastic straw ban and a plastic bag ban, but there's been pushback from industry and groups to these types of bans. Can you talk to us about that? Yes, and that that the the force behind all that is the American Chemistry Council, um, and they are heavily tied to the petroleum industry. Big shock. Um, and one thing I love, they they call themselves the American Chemistry Council, not the American Chemical. Council. That's very intentional because mm-hmm. um, you know chemistry. That's a good thing, right? So um, they have been behind um, two efforts in South Carolina. One is what we call the ban ban, the plastic ban, plastic bag ban ban bill. It is an effort um, to prevent communities from deciding on their own whether or not they want to put uh, plastic bag ordinances in place. And so many communities on the coast um, have done this because they're seeing what's happening to marine life. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and even in my community inland mm-hmm. in Camden, South Carolina, we have a plastic bags ban. I live in Lugoff across the river. It doesn't come across the river, unfortunately, but it was a big deal. It just came in this year, January 2020. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that process, the, the community decided on this. The community decided it was important. Um, And here we have the state legislature saying, no, community, you can't do that. But South Carolina is a home rule state. Um, And because of that, the communities are given a lot more power to decide things for themselves. And so there has been this tremendous fight in the state house um, between uh, about this bill. And um, as of We've fought it this year. Coastal Conservation League uh, was instrumental in fighting that. And I'll also kind of back up just a little bit. Coastal Conservation League and um, Charleston Waterkeeper have also filed a lawsuit against Frontier down in Charleston over those nurdles. 
So, so there's a brand new lawsuit um, going forward, um, a Clean Water Act lawsuit on that with the Coastal Conservation League. And, and uh, Southern Environmental Law Center is their legal counsel. And they're all just awesome entities. Um, Upstate Forever is sort of the mountains version of Coastal Conservation League. Um, we're a regional environmental nonprofit. Um, but we also, we all work together in South Carolina on common issues. Um, we have an incredibly strong conservation community and a coalition in South Carolina. Um, we're also super sensitive in the state to waste issues. So certain types of um, uh, legislation that may have passed in other states that is sort of pro-trash has a lot harder time in South Carolina um, because of this. Um, the other bill was the what we call the plastics pyrolysis bill. This too was um, advanced by the American Chemistry Council as a solution to our uh, growing plastics problem. It's a way of using um, gasification, pyrolysis, uh, to convert the, uh, since plastic is made from fossil fuels, to basically convert it back into a fuel or it's it, the components of fuel, which are benzene and you can pit the process, how they, how you configure the process to determine what you would get out of it on the end. And then the theory was you sell it again as fuel and it's a circular process. Well, it sounds good on paper, but it is also heavily reliant again upon number one, you being able to produce a fuel that will actually work and is in demand and that somebody's willing to pay for that somehow they're willing to pay for that, which has had all this processing done to it. How can it possibly be cheaper than the fuel they would already buy? Mm -hmm. So the economics to me never worked out. I, I did not see how these plants could ever possibly be profitable. Um, and, and even beyond that, I don't think, I don't, I think they were also far from carbon neutral. Um, ultimately, if you create a plastic bag and then you landfill it, well, at least if you've landfilled it, you have not released more carbon. If you turn it back into a fuel and you burn it again, that's another opportunity to release carbon. So that, that was another effort. That one got through, got rammed through the house, but we were able to hold it up in the Senate. Um, and I think... Yeah, in the long term, these will all be back year after year, and we will keep fighting them year after year. We heard um, the, the plastics pyrolysis legislation passed pretty easily in Florida and in Georgia, and they were a little shocked that they had problems in South Carolina. Um, but again, we have an incredibly um, effective conservation coalition, and we there are a lot of us who've been around a long time and we've had a lot of bad experiences in South Carolina with out-of-state dumping. And our, our legislators, uh, many of our legislators are very sensitive to that. And that's a good thing. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about that for our audience who might not know about that. Um, South Carolina has been known maybe as our nation's dumping ground. We've been burned. We accept uh, trash from New York State. I understand we also except am i right in saying nuclear waste and down in the savannah yeah. site is that right or wrong yeah savannah river site um uh, pinewood was a, a horrible toxic dump that many legislators remember and is now closed down and costing a fortune to monitor um you know the the out-of-state waste was was out of control for quite a while um, we had sewer sludge coming down from new york and new jersey um, that has been, we, we, again, we joined forces, worked together, put regulations in place that have at least no longer incentivized that situation. You cannot outright ban it, um, because of, uh, commerce laws, but we're certainly no longer incentivizing it and the situation has vastly improved. Mm. And so the American Chemistry Council is coming in and trying to prevent communities from putting plastic bag bans in place. And Correct. then they were also pro-plastics pyrolysis, which mm -hmm. uh, you guys have um, battled and prevented 
from coming to right. the state, correct? Right. Just that, yes, we need some kind of option with the plastic waste, but that's not the one. Right. That one, that one seemed like a shell game to me. Okay. And then um, th- sometimes we see articles or videos as well about um, incinerators in Europe. I've seen one mm-hmm. circulating about Sweden, I think, showing that they have no waste because they incinerate their trash in some way. And people s- are maybe insinuating this would be an option for the US. But um, you've told me that you don't think this is a good idea for the US. Can you first of all, explain what this incineration in Europe is and then why it will or will not work in the U.S. Mm -hmm. Europe has several differences from the United States. Number one being they source separate their recycling way better than we do um, for the most part. Most countries do. Um, You know, so you don't have a lot of high value commodities like those number one and number two plastics going into the waste stream. Um, They've, you know, they all of the value that can be captured has been taken out. Also, they're much more dense and you just don't have room for landfills in Europe. So they have to do something. And of course, they have much more stringent environmental regulations with respect to emissions. Um, And people are just going to expect that it's going to cost more. Incineration, when properly regulated um, and the emissions are properly controlled, is going to be expensive. Um, because if you're burning plastics, you are getting dioxins. So, and all sorts of other um, uh, emissions that are harmful and that have to be captured, have to be closely regulated. The United States, number one, we don't do a very good job recycling. So a lot of those high commodity uh, items, um, paper, cardboard, paper, fiber, that's where the BTUs come from you know, things that burn, things that are made from petroleum products. So it's going to be your high value um, paper, cardboard products, and then also your higher value um, plastics, where the BTUs are going to come from, and which means they're gone. They're, they're turned into carbon, into emissions. Um, so because of that and the fact that we're just not very good at regulating polluters, um, we closed an incinerator in South Carolina many years ago that caused a, a lot of uh, community harm. Now there's an attempt to come to, to bring incineration back to South Carolina. And we're going to continue to fight that because we are not to the point where that is the best alternative. We're, I hate to say it, we still have plenty of landfill space, but what we need to do now is fiercely protect that landfill space by recycling as much as possible, by inc- dramatically increasing composting and commercial composting, um, and just preserve what we have as long as we can before we bring in something as nasty as incineration as a, as a last resort. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Uh, the, I think sometimes the vastness of our nation can hurt us because we came into, let's say, the origins of the United States, this wilderness, which I think we all know was not a wilderness. There are plenty of people here before we got here. But this idea, right. it, it set up a, a, a wasteful use of all of the resources. I, I've just read in one of my wildflower books about the abuse of the land in South Carolina, where they would just um, till and plant and plant with knowing that they were going to remove the fertility. And they did that anyway, because it was so cheap just to move over, you know, a few hundred acres and do exactly the same thing. So they just, this sort of um, idea, and it's similar with our waste, we can just throw it out of sight, out of mind. Whereas, as you mentioned, Europe is much denser. You throw it over your shoulder and it's going in your neighbor's yard and it's only so long until someone complains about that. Um, Let's circle back and tell me a little bit about glass recycling because glass is from what we think is a very, is a material that can be recycled and should be recycled. But um, even my community with the plastic bag ban no longer has glass recycling. So what's going on in that case? Now, glass is that commodity that can be endlessly recycled. You know, glass is glass is glass, and it doesn't, uh, you know, there are no fibers that get shorter. Um, But what has happened with glass is for for many years, uh, first off, it was communities demanded that glass be brought into the recycling stream. And while prices were high, um, basically other commodities propped up glass. 
um, and carried it along. But it was tough on the equipment. It's also very heavy to move. Um, and so in order to be successful, you need to have a glass processor nearby. Many years ago, um, the conservation community, I can't remember what year, um, we tried to pass what's called an ABC bill, um, where uh, bars and re anybody with an ABC permit was, would be required to, originally it was required to recycle all of those containers. Um, then it was, eventually it was watered down to where they just had to get, they had to look at the numbers, they had to get a bid. But the point is you create a, a predictable supply stream and a processor will come and locate in your community. That happened in North Carolina. Strategic Materials built a huge facility in Wilson, North Carolina, and there's some in Georgia. That was our goal. We were working with the Department of Commerce on this. Um, you know, our goal was to get a glass processor in South Carolina, and then that that it becomes cheaper to haul all that glass to one place where it's then turned into what's called cullet. And it can either be turned into fiberglass or more bottles, whatever. That bill failed. Um, it was killed um, in the, at the last minute um, by the Charleston Hospitality folks. And basically they said they didn't want to be told what to do with their glass. And glass continued along for several years and then all of a sudden it was gone. Um, as the, the uh, prices paid for the rest of the commodities dropped, as fuel prices dropped, it, they couldn't afford to carry glass anymore. Um, and so one by one, the MRFs, the material recovery facilities, stopped accepting glass. And if the MRF won't accept it, then the city can't take it because you know, it goes from the city to the MRF. Um, so that's what happened to glass. There are some pilot projects where they're trying to do some things locally. We have some here in the upstate. Um, there's fisher recycling in Charleston doing some interesting stuff. So there are some small pilot projects that are um, capturing some of that glass and turning it into things. But for the most part, um, most communities in South Carolina have stopped recycling glass unless they happen to be on a border and it is cost effective to take it to North Carolina or to Georgia. You know, there's a hauler who can do that. So we have a couple of counties um, on the borders that can still do that. But for the most part, it's, it's gone. The game changer for glass and for a lot of this would be if there was a price on carbon. Mm. Because recycled glass has a lower carbon intensity. Um, you Basically, you burn your furnaces at a lower temperature. And the same would hold for plastics, for everything. If we had a price on carbon, that would go a long way toward solving a lot of these problems and, and restarting the, the recycling engine. So like a price on carbon, would that, is that the same idea as a carbon tax? So um, it, would, it would be eventually passed on to the consumer and that would dissuade a consumer from buying something that had a higher carbon footprint. And so it would encourage them to buy something recycled. Is that the right way to um, understand that? It all depends on how it's, it depends on how it's structured. Um, it, it, the, like one plan um, out there is called tax and dividend where there's a price on carbon where the, the, the carbon intense industries do pay, the, you know, they, they are taxed, but then money to um, citizens or individuals who are either are, are lowering carbon emissions or are, are not contributing to the problem. So it all depends on how it's structured okay. um, or there's cap and trade. You know, there are lots of different ways to do it, mm -hmm. but that would recognizing through a price, what carbon is doing to our ecosystem would go a long way toward sending the correct message. Um, you know, it, companies, if, if they wanted to avoid that carbon tax, they would find ways to reduce their, their carbon intensity mm -hmm. you know, and do something better. Like the, um, there is growth in plant-based um, plastics. I don't, know, I don't know if you still call them plastics, but there's a lot of... Uh, um, attention growing in creating plastics out of things that are not fossil fuels. Um, mm -hmm. And I'm 
really intrigued by those. See where they go. Yeah. So let's talk about that in terms of, um, so the future of waste management and how it can be less harmful for the environment. You've touched on a little bit, um, you know, plant-based plastics, but basically I imagine just removing plastics from Mm -hmm. our supply chain and, and our consumer products right now is there because it's driven by industry. It's also incredibly cheap, you mm-hmm. know, and so companies are going to use it because it cuts the cost. Um, but, you know, we still have things going to landfill, things that can't be replaced. And then something that gets me super excited would be if we could start composting all of this stuff. Yes. So tell us, tell us about what you would like to see for the future of waste management. Well, there, there, there are compostable um, plastic bags. Um, I'm, uh, I'm a customer of a commercial composting company in South Carolina called Atlas Organics. And the, the bag liners they use are compostable. Now, now this is commercially compostable, which is at a very high temperature. It's not your backyard stuff. Um, but I also buy, I have to get them on the internet. So there's shipping involved, which is, there's some emissions there, but I buy compostable plastic baggies. And so when my son was taking a sandwich to school every single day, he's too cool to carry a plastic reusable thing. Um, So the compost, the compostable bag sandwich goes in, it comes home in the book bag and then all that goes into the compost bin. Um, That would seeing growth there and then in the the alternatives also just thinking about do i really need this plastic bag when i see people go through the produce department and just mindlessly shove things in plastic bags i just think really yeah like <laughs> bananas right yeah <laughs> bananas come with their own little packaging mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah why would you put bananas in a bag and or if I just leave a store if I just go to the store and I buy a couple of things well number one I always have my own cloth bags always 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 but if I ran in and I didn't take a bag and I only bought one thing I'm like I'm not putting that in a bag you know I so many times I just I'll tell I'll tell um a clerk you know I'd rather not have a bag if you don't mind they never mind mm-hmm. um so just thinking about do I really need that flimsy little piece of plastic for this purpose? Um, just being much more mindful, mm-hmm. I think goes a long way. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think um, it's interesting. So I have my own produce bags that I bring and I mm-hmm. bought some for my stepmom because um, I was like, you'll, you'll like them, you'll reuse them. And it's actually a conversation starter in the store. I've had so many people come up to me and say, excuse me, where did you get those? And I was like, I ordered them on Amazon and mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan of using Amazon, but unfortunately some of these, th- some of these things are only seem to be found that way. Um, and they yeah. think it's really cool. And I'm like, yeah, why not? You know, we have tons of reusable produce bags like that. What I found interesting, and I've seen this um, reply to that, is there is a miss, well, they, there's a cleanliness factor. There's some people who truly believe that it has to be in plastic for it to be clean. And so I think we need to do some education around that. I'm not sure what you think about that. Yeah, I, I mean, I understand, okay, if you're, if you eat meat and you buy that wrapped you think plastic, yeah, I think there are certain uses. And again, and I think we will move toward those plant-based plastics. Um, for those types of purposes. Um, you know, I think that's definitely a growth area there. Um, I, I know people who insist on a straw because they don't want to drink out of a restaurant cup. I'm just not one of those people. Um, you know, I don't think a straw ban is going to solve every problem in the world, but I just, I don't have, I, I also, I do have my stainless steel straws. I think those are great. Um, you know, I just, I think more in terms of permanence or if I do have to use plastic, sometimes you just can't get away from needing a big old gallon Ziploc bag. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But what I try to do now more is whatever goes in the Ziploc bag, pre-wrap it with wax paper so that I can then reuse that Ziploc bag again and again and again and again and again. Um, rather than washing it, I, I at least, you know, try for it to, and then the, the, um, the wax paper goes in the compost bin. 
So you can make, even if it is plastic, you can make it last um, a lot longer. Mm -hmm. Um, And of course I compost. Yes. Let's let's talk about compost. I, we compost at home and we have been for a while and it took maybe like a week for me to adjust and understand what goes in the compost. Um, I've also tried to expand it out to my co-working space where I'm bringing the compost home with me. And luckily we can get through it enough to be able to provide that. But I was excited being on a call with you that they identified four large um, commercial composting facilities in South Carolina. And one of them is like nine miles down the road from me, a huge compost, commercial composting facility, which I need to get to this week to get some compost. But what would, I understand that not everyone can do home composting. Either they don't have the land, they don't have the patience, they don't have, I'm thinking of my um, dad and his wife, they wouldn't have the physical ability to even have a heap compost pile. But um, do you think we can get to the point where we have curbside compost uh, abilities? I, that's what I have Um, um, because of Atlas. I pay for it and I love it. I am absolutely willing to pay for it. You know, I, that I have a, I have a, I had a t-shirt made a long time ago that uh, says methane is the gunslinger. It's from Fred Pierce's book with speed and violence. Uh, It's about um, tipping points in climate change. And Mm -hmm. so I've been paying attention to methane and landfills and permafrost and all that for a long time. Mm -hmm. So by golly, I will pay for curbside compost because if it goes in the landfill, it becomes methane. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's what you're and 40%, more than 40% of what goes into our landfills is compostable. So, I mean, that's, seems like a no-brainer to me. We are moving in the right direction. There's gonna, there was going to be a bill, a resolution that was going to pay, um, uh, Vincent Shaheen was going to, had put it up, that was going to pay a, a lot more attention. He's my representative. Woo-hoo. Oh, yeah, great. <laughs> uh, it'll, be, it'll be back um, once things return to normal. Um, but that would have uh, had DHEC, you know, take a look at what it's going to take to get larger scale composting up and running. It, it does make economic sense for certain entities like grocery stores mm-hmm. um, because they are paying to landfill their waste produce. Um, so they could also pay, I don't know how the economics work out, but maybe pay less to the compost hauler um, for all those organics, all that stuff that you know, was going to go to rot um, in, the, in the produce department. So the economics work, work out for them, but how do we scale it for everyone um, and make it affordable um, for everyone? And that's the direction that we need to be working. Again, if we're going to keep our landfills running, um, keep incinerators out of this state and pr- slow down the production of, of methane in landfills um, and just turning what came from the earth back to the earth. Mm-hmm. And you were talking about our, um, our, 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 our crop habits where it was, where we just used up the land and then moved on. Compost puts it back, mm-hmm. you know, compost f- feeds the earth. Mm-hmm. So it's nice, nice circle there. Yeah. And I think uh, if we're mindful and uh, I've spoken to one of my friends who's a, who's a permaculture chick down in Florida and we get a little excited about compost because there's something very satisfying about taking something that was waste and turning it back into your land and then growing food from it. And it's this circular um, circular economy or cir- this cycle that's it's, um, it's hard to explain unless you've done it. Everyone I know who's composted and has the ability to do it gets that sort of warm, fuzzy feeling from doing it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think a lot of it is educating people on it, on the, on either composting themselves or provide, or why we should compost. Uh, I know I was on the hunt for wood chips to build some of the soil in our yard and uh, called tree removal places. And they're like, we just take it to the landfill and you can't get anything from the landfill. I called the county. They just don't have anything set up for residents to get wood chips. Like it's just not possible. And I'm like, you know, if you have someone driving that and educating people, these are Instead of it going to the landfill, it can go somewhere else. You know, I hope right. can do that. Yes. Yeah. Well, as as our you know, as there are more of us, as we you know, space gets tighter, 
we are in as, as the climate changes, we are forced to think about these things. Mm-hmm. So that, that's why we're here in the conservation community to keep those things moving forward. Yeah, you're doing wonderful work. It's been incredible to connect with you and other organizations in the state who are doing this great work. So Shelley, what would you advise us as individuals to do when it comes to our, our managing our own waste? Think. <laughs> Just mm-hmm. stop and think about, you know, spend some time with each, each of uh, purchasing decision. Um, think about what your options are. Is there a way to do this uh, with less plastic? And you know, I used to buy bagged kale. Yes, kale. Um, <laughs> I'm one of those people. And I got to thinking, it's always in this plastic bag. And I thought, there's bunched kale. And it's probably from a farm closer by. I'll just buy the bunched kale, not put it in a plastic bag, take it home. And, you know, so that was, that, that was one check did that, you know, just item after item, just sort of think, think through what are your alternatives? Um, And again, it does, it doesn't have to be more expensive. The bunched kale is actually cheaper than the bagged kale. So just be mindful of, think about the petroleum products that went in to making this plastic and then ultimately where it could wind up, it might wind up in Malaysia being burned and turning into dioxins. Is it worth it? Um, and again, we, you can't do everything. There is still plastic in my trash can. And of mm-hmm. course my trash bags are plastic. Mm-hmm. Although I have bought some recycled trash bags but tackle as many things as you can just think about it um you know and if you need some google you know look for ideas on the internet or just see what your options are to yeah. stop stop being mindless about it be mindful mm-hmm. i agree with that i think as consumers mindful consumption is a powerful thing i think uh we they make things as simple as possible for you to just move with it so we're paying for convenience amongst you know Mm -hmm. above all else but really tiny habit changes don't cost you don't necessarily cost you more money or more time but make a huge amount of difference so if we can all be mindful consumers and I think there's an education element I remember when we first started composting at my house and I told my dad um you know, we went from three trash bags a week to the landfill to uh, one trash bag. That's it. And my dad's like, oh, do you save money? And I'm like, no, that's, <laughs> that's not, <laughs> it's not a money saving thing. They, they don't charge us by a trash bag, but it's just satisfying. I'm not sending three bags of trash a week to the landfill, you know, yeah. of course we're not Although, perfect, but. In some communities, they have what's called pay as you throw. Mm-hmm. That that's another alternative. You know, it's a policy change. It would be difficult to get uh, accepted widely in South Carolina. But if you did have to pay for um, every bag that you threw away or for the size of your roll cart, if you pay more for a big roll cart, less for a little roll cart, people would be more thoughtful. The counter to that is um, in South Carolina, folks say, nah, people just throw stuff by the road. Yeah. I don't, I mean, there might be some of that, but I think it would make us all think a lot more about um, the quantity of trash that we produce. Definitely, for sure. Mm. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation, Shelley. I really appreciate your time today. Um, is there anything, any other thoughts you want to leave us with before we wrap it up? I was, as I was um, kind of poking around with some things, that every time I think about um, plastics and these issues my mind always goes back to the the film the graduate and i don't know if you ever saw that but it was dustin hoffman and it came out it came out one month to the day after i was born in 1967 where the guy says to dustin hoffman who's young and doesn't know what he wants to do i got one word for you plastics and that's i always hear that in my head mm-hmm. Um, and the fact that then finding out that it came out so close to when I was actually born, oh, I just thought that was interesting. So yeah. we'll continue to fight the good fight um, and raise awareness. And and you, I thank you so much for the opportunity to let me yak about this um, and for getting, getting the message out there and for everything you do. And circling back to one of your other um, uh, guests about people knowing 
the, on whose land they live. Mm -hmm. I live yep. in on Cherokee hunting lands in upstate of South Carolina. So on our side of the Ennery River, it was Cherokee game lands and hunting lands. So Yeah, I still need to get up to, um, I have it written down here. There's a reservation up outside of Rock Hill, the Catawba Cultural Center. Yeah, the Catawbas. Mm -hmm. I still haven't been there. I've been saying I need to, and then Corona came, and I really didn't want to yeah. be... <sighs> You know, I can't help but think I'm that white person coming in with a smallpox blanket. Like, no, not like I'm not coming in. <laughs> you know, we'll let them do their thing. But yeah, that uh, that conversation was with David Harper mm -hmm. uh, for Land in Common, and I know I've always felt a little bit like a foreigner in South Carolina. I spent half my life growing up in Scotland and half here, and I just it in Scotland, I, f I feel it's a different feeling. Like it feels old with roots, mm -hmm. but um, the reality is I live here. I love where I live and I've been communing with the land more and learning more about it and trying to discover who was here before us and what sort of plants would uh, be here. And it's been, I actually feel like I belong here a little bit more as I commune more with the land. And so you're right in saying it's very important to understand those things and, and have that respect back and forth. It's been an interesting journey. <laughs> well, you're making it a better place and I appreciate that. Well, I appreciate you, Shelley. How do people connect with you and with Upstate Forever and the work that you guys are doing? Uh, we've got an easy website name, upstateforever.org. Okay. And then I'm Shelly Robbins, so I'm just S. Robbins, S-R-O-B-B-I-N-S, two Bs, um, at upstateforever.org. And you can find me on our staff page on our website as well. Excellent. Well, I hope uh, we will connect with you. And um, I really appreciate your time today and the, the information you've imparted us about plastics. And uh, I just encourage everyone to do their research on it, figure out what those one to sevens are. Uh, I'll be sure to share on our social media the information I can find to help people make smart decisions and, um, and use this podcast as an educational tool as well. Thank you. All right. Thank you, Shelley. Have a wonderful day. You too. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye. How was that for you? Shelly has got me very interested in the future of our waste management and reminded me to be mindful with what I buy every day. To support the Eco Interviews, follow us on Facebook and Instagram, share this podcast with your friends, and donate on our Patreon account. Our goal is to bring you environmental content that scratches below the surface and give you ideas of things that are within your power to make a change for the better. When things are so divisive these days, I remind myself that Earth is what we have in common and that is worth fighting for.